Mount Everest is over 29,000 feet tall. And when you reach 26,200 feet, you reach something called the death zone. Above 26,250 feet, the oxygen, is, uh, the oxygen level is so low that the human body cannot acclimate to it over time. And so if you stay too long in the death zone without some type of oxygen, without some type of outside help, you die. Hence the name, the death zone. Put that up there, would you, uh, Miriam? So you see where it is. Um, what I read was it takes anywhere from six to nine weeks to climb Mount Everest. Now, that's because it takes time to get there. I don't know how many of you have two months off that you could go just climb a big hill, uh, but evidently people do this. There's thousands of people who have done this. And so it takes six to nine weeks and anywhere from 30000 to $65,000 in order to make it to the top of Mount Everest. And so what the guy said, I read about this guy, he's tried several times before he finally made it at age 54. Um, but he said, what you do is you go over and you spend a few weeks acclimating to a certain level, certain uh Height, And so you'll go up to a base camp and you'll take some things up there and you'll come back down. Then you'll go to another camp and you'll acclimate. You spend a lot of time getting to different places. And the reason it's from 30,000 to 65,000, 30,000 is the bare bones trip. 65,000 is you got Sherpas, you got Western guides, you got translators, you know, you got other people that carry all the heavy stuff. But you notice that camp four is right around the 8,000 meter level. That's 26,250 feet. Camp four is right there at the edge of it because if you have some problems, you can come back down. If you, if you acclimate, then you can go up and you go from camp four up to the summit. And the greatest number of deaths have been in the death zone. And um, I want us to think a little bit about this today, because in 2006, some people were climbing. They were going to the summit. They encountered a lone um, climber. They assumed he was with another group of people. They kept going to the summit. They left him to die. Shortly after that, there was another group, and there were 11 Sherpas and four climbers. They found a guy named Lincoln Hall. And, and he was in the death zone, and it was obvious the dude was in trouble, and they gave up their summit trip. So you think about it. They gave up six to nine weeks' worth of their time. They gave up all of their cash so that they could stay with this guy, get him down below the death zone, and eventually get him back down to base camp. This guy recovered completely. What was the difference in the two? One had a team. The other was completely alone. One survived because of t- unselfish teamwork. The other died because he was alone. Well, what I want to talk to you today is about reaching the summit relationally. The Bible talks a lot about relationships and how to do relationships better. But what happens is many times we get into the death zone relationally and instead of working together as a team, we become individuals, we become isolated and our relationships die. But if you are a Christ follower, you have a not-so-secret weapon to help you love anyone completely. When Jesus came to the last 30 days of his life, this is one of the principles. We're looking at four principles that Jesus focused on in the last 30 days on the planet before he died on the cross. This is the second principle. We'll do three and four next week. But this is the second principle. And this is the one we have the most regrets in when people are lying on their deathbed because it has to do with broken relationships. And this is the most important of the four principles that Jesus focused his life on. So I've had a lot of encounters this last week thinking about this one month to live. Had I known about my nephew, you know, I could have warned him. I could have talked to him. And, and uh, I have so many memories 
of my sister and my brother-in-law and her kids coming. I, I went to Disney World with them, stayed in a hotel room with my sister and her husband and their two children, which was a trip in, its, in and of itself. I've been to, you know, Longhorn Caverns. I've been to SeaWorld. I've been all over traveling with my sister and her kids. And, and you know, I think... I think back to, and and I'm grateful for the relationship I had with Damon, but man, if I had known last Wednesday was his last day on earth, what I could have done maybe to help. And so I've really been asking myself this, this question, what would I focus on if I had 30 days left to live? Jesus focused on these four things. And I want you to see this not so secret weapon that Christ followers have in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Paul says, I know very well how foolish it sounds to those who are lost. When they hear that Jesus Christ died to save them. So, okay, he's saying lost people, people who, who are not in the family of God, who are not adopted into God's family. They think that this whole idea of Jesus dying to save them is kind of crazy, kind of foolishness. He said, I understand that. But look what he says. But, the, but we who are saved recognize this message as the very power of God. Jesus showed us the ultimate demonstration of love. An innocent person dying because you and I are sinners and knowing that there's nothing we could do to get to his father in heaven. He died for us. Ultimate act of love. But not only that, it says that if we look to the cross, we can have the power to love others like God loves us. That's a supernatural power. Very few of us are where we need to be in our relationships because of one of three mountains. These are on your listening guide. These are huge. These are as big as Mount Everest. And we need to learn how to climb these mountains if we're going to have the relationships that God designed for us to have. Number one is the mountain of misunderstanding. Misunderstandings can kill a relationship. In the beginning of any relationship, especially dating, whatever, it could be business partners, it could just be friends. You have this great connection with someone, you think, they're awesome. They like the same things I like. They like to do the same things I like to do. They're awesome. Everything's so positive and you're climbing, you're going up the trail together and bam, a misunderstanding happens. Am I the only one that's ever happened to No, okay, just checking. I I, want to make sure I'm relating to you. You have this big boulder of misunderstanding that drops down in the middle of you. And the way you handle this situation, this misunderstanding, will determine whether that relationship dies in the death zone or whether it makes it to the summit. So you start off and you think, man, this is great, everything's good. And, And then you find out that that person's not just like you, like you thought. Let me just ask you this. Those of you who are married... How many of you would say, I married somebody who is very unlike me? Let me see your hands. Keep your hands up. Hang on, hang on, look around. Very unlike me. Opposites attract. But then what happens? Opposites attack. What seemed to be so cute now drives you nuts, right? If you focus on that. See, uh, I don't have to tell you guys that that when opposites attract and you start to attack, I don't have to tell you that there's conflict, right, between men and women. Anybody not know that that men and women have conflict? Um, (laughs) Rather than clinging to the ideal that this spouse or this friend or this business partner is perfect because nobody's perfect, 
We have to go to the real and say, okay, everybody has flaws. All of us have problems, and we have to work through those problems. Differences, opinion, they're natural, inevitable, inevitable parts of every relationship. We can't read each other's minds, and so there's going to be misunderstanding. There's going to be miscommunication, misinterpretations. We have to decide, are we going to be mature and work through those, or are we going to allow that mountain to grow and for that relationship to die? There's a second mountain. The mountain of me first. Human nature says, I'll meet your needs if you meet my needs first. If you don't believe that, ride along in a vehicle with any family who has children. Where do you think the idea of shotgun came from? It's from the me first, I want to sit in the front seat. Um, we had to modify the rules of shotgun so that we could stay sane in my family. You can't call shotgun more than one minute before you get in the car. You cannot, you have to say the word shotgun out loud in order to get the privilege of riding in the sh- riding shotgun. Thinking that you wished you had said the word shotgun before your brother said it does not qualify you to ride in shotgun. You can't call the word shotgun out until you see the car because everybody wants to ride up front, right? And the kids are like that. We're naturally me first people. What do children say if you pick, if somebody picks up their toys, what does a kid say? Mine. Adults are exactly the same way. Try to take something that's mine. And hope I'm not near a gun. Right? I mean, seriously, adults are no different. We get this jealousy, this me first, this, this uh, I want to have stuff for me. I want you to meet my needs. We have that because we're natural people. We don't need to be natural people. We need to be supernatural people. So we got to get over this mountain. There's a third mountain. It's the mountain of mistakes. Now, I want you to think very carefully about this. This, is this little survey question. If you've never made a mistake, raise your hand. And I want you to keep it up so that we can all see that you're a narcissist. All right? I'm just giving you an example. If you've been to any sermons, you know I've made mistakes, and I tell you about those. Now, many relationships are stranded forever in the death zone because somebody made a mistake, and somebody is unwilling to forgive the other person. We're going to be hurt. We're going to be wronged. And it's real easy to build up this mountain of bitterness, resentment around our hearts and to say in our minds, I'll never let you hurt me like that again. And you know who we're hurting the most? It's ourselves. That's right. When you build this mountain of bitterness, you're going to hurt yourself. You see, relationships can overcome anger. Listen to me. Relationships do not end because of anger. Relationships end because of bitterness. Because, see, the Bible says that sometimes it's healthy to get angry. Jesus Christ was angry about certain things. There are certain things that should make you angry. If you don't get angry about certain things, maybe you got some issues. Maybe you're not being real. There are certain things you're supposed to be angry about, but it's the way you handle the anger that determines whether it becomes sin or not. Because anything past anger over unrighteousness, over, over something done to you... Um, uh, Deliberately to hurt you. Those things, protecting the unborn, protecting um, uh, orphans and widows in their distress is what the Bible says. We're supposed to get angry about injustice. But it's the way you handle that anger that determines whether it's sin or not. And so we, we turn to this bitterness stuff and we try to, we try to 
insulate ourselves and all we do is poison ourselves. We can be intimidated by these three mountains or we can decide I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to be a person who's better at relationships. I would like to suggest that maybe we need to grow up a little bit and pour ourselves into those people in our lives that God's already brought into our lives to motivate them to stay on this trail with us. Because nobody wins if you quit. You only win if you work together and you make it to the top of the mountain. And we empower them to persevere long after we've gone. Relationships are not for wimps. But praise God, we have a power that's bigger than us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available, the Bible says, to help us love people in our lives completely. And, and God's power supply is limitless, and the price of His resources never go up because they're completely free. So the Bible gives us a very clear path to how we're to overcome these three obstacles, these three mountains in our lives. And let's talk about that. The first is the rope of acceptance. In order to persevere and improve in relationships, we have to connect with the rope of acceptance. And, and to me, this is kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen the mountain climbing stuff. I've done some of the, the ropes elements where, you know, you are belayed to someone else. In, in mountain climbing, they have this system where they tie ropes to the rock. And it's called this belaying system, B-E-L-A-Y-I-N-G, belaying. And so they, they tie them to the rock in case they lose their footing, they don't die. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good thing to, to follow. Um, we can't climb to new heights safely if we're not connected to the rock. Romans fifteen seven says, Therefore accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that, you will, that God will be given glory. Now, this is, this is where when someone hurts me and, and I have to choose whether I'm going to forgive or not, I look at the cross. If I'm struggling to forgive somebody, I look at what Jesus did on the cross, hang in there thinking, I did that to him. And he forgave me. So this, this verse says that we um, are to accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. When I accept someone, I don't try to change them. If I'm trying to change them, I don't really love them. Now, those of you who are married, again, you, you realize there's differences between men and women, right? Well, I uh, asked Janie to, uh, to help me point out the differences in men and women, and, um, and there was a little conflict that was going on. I want you to watch this video, and then we'll talk about it. Need sound. And uh, what I have here is a list, ten simple things that men really wish women understood about men. I didn't make up the list, but I wanted to get Janie's gut-level reaction to it because she's not heard this list before. Number 10, ladies, if something we said can be interpreted two ways and one of those ways makes you sad or angry, we meant the other. Number nine, just simple things that I'm sharing. Number nine, learn to work the toilet seat. You're a big girl. If it's up, put it down. Don't complain. Don't gripe about it. It's just simple. We're really simple folks. I mean, this is not hard to understand. Number eight, we're not thinking about you. Live with it. Ten simple things about men that I didn't write. I'm just telling you that it would be much more simple <laughs> if you understood these things. Uh, number seven, when we have to go somewhere, absolutely anything you wear will be fine. Really. 
anything. Number six, come to us with a problem only if you want help solving it because that's what we do. Sympathy is what your girlfriends are for. Ten simple things I didn't write. I'm just telling you how we can get along better as men and women. Number five, whenever possible, please say whatever you have to say during commercials, if you can. Number four, Christopher Columbus didn't need directions, and neither do we. Right, guys? Number three, if it itches, it will be scratched. We do that. It's no big deal. Don't you make a big deal of it. Number two, we're not mind readers and never will be. Our lack of mind reading ability is not proof of how little we care about you. We do a lot of other things to prove how little we care, but that's not one of them. And the number one simple thing that we really wish women understood about men is if we ask what is wrong and you say nothing, we will act like nothing is wrong. We know you're lying, but it's just not worth the hassle. Now, I know I'm going to pay for this for the rest of this message, this sermon. And so in order to start paying my dues, I thought I would give Janie equal time. Ready, sweetheart? All right, ladies, are you ready for our side of the story? Because someone gave me a men's thesaurus to help me understand guys. Because guys don't always say what they mean. For example, when a guy says, uh, you wouldn't understand, it's a guy thing, uh, what that really means is no rational thought pattern has been applied to this situation, so our logical minds can't understand it. Nice sports program. And, and is that all you got? Because if that's all you got, then guys are in good shape. I know. There's more. Uh, let's see. When a man says, can I help with dinner? What that means is, how come dinner isn't already on the table? And when a man says, uh-huh, sure, yes, dear, that's a conditioned response. And it means absolutely nothing. When a man says, take a break, you're working too hard. That means, can you turn off the vacuum? Because I can't hear the game. The vacuum's too loud. When a man says, that's interesting. Translation is, are you still talking? (laughs) And when a man says, I can't find it. That means, it hasn't fallen into my outstretched arms, and so I'm clueless. So, if our relationship is going to go to new heights, then I have to understand what you want from me, and all the men out there have to understand what women want. So, what is it that you want from me? I want acceptance. Okay, what does that mean to you, acceptance? That means stop trying to change me and start cherishing me. Okay, so I ask you to give me a list of things that I would be doing that would make you feel cherished. Would you share that news with us? Yes. I feel cherished when you appreciate the hard work I do for our family. I feel cherished when you tell me I'm beautiful. I feel cherished when you have my back. I feel cherished when you lead our family spiritually. And when you hold my hand or give me a tender touch, even though you might be mad at me. But I'm never mad at you. Well, okay, so that's a good list of things. And if each of our spouses, the the special ladies in our lives, would give us that kind of list, then guys could follow it. And that would 
definitely help us get to a higher level in our relationship, right? (laughs) All right, so here's the good news, guys. We don't have to understand her, but we do need to try. When I try to understand her, it means I'm connecting with her, which means I'm in the game with her. Now, guys, you can understand the game analogy, right? When we're in the game together, we're working together. We're trying to win. Um, Sometimes teammates can connect with each other, and it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes teammates like Tony Romo connect with the other team five times in one thing, and it's just really difficult to win when you're connecting with the other team. Acceptance is trying to understand and connect with the other person. I want you to look at this, this picture of acceptance from God's word. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now does it say they were both naked and they felt no shame because they were going to body pump or they are doing P90X for the last 95 days? No, it doesn't say that. Um, that's not what it means. They were experiencing total acceptance by another human being. To be totally accepted, we have to let our guard down. And isn't that just the opposite of what we do? Instead of letting my guard down so that you can know the real me, I'm afraid that if I let you know the real me, you'll see that I have faults, I'll have flaws, and you won't like me. Isn't that what we do? So we put up masks. One little kid said that dating is where a guy and a girl go out and pretend to be someone they're not so they can get married. Little kids. Pretty, pretty good, you know, because a lot of times we don't want you to know what's on the inside because we're so scared that someone will not accept us. Adam and Eve didn't cover up anything. They didn't have to have fig leaves to cover up their emotions. They didn't have to have fig leaves to cover up their flaws. They were totally accepted. And that's what everyone here wants today. To be totally accepted for who you are by another human being. Am I right? That's love. When someone cherishes you. But we're, we're not in the Garden of Eden, are we? It's not natural. For me to accept you just like you are. It's, it's natural for me to try to change you or you to try to change me. We were talking about this in our family this week. And Jenny goes, I think that's where most of the conflict comes from in families. And she was talking about our family. When we try to change the other person to be like us instead of cherishing them as a gift from God. So what we've got to do is we've got to focus. I need to focus on my faults. I need to focus on God and, and see that I don't measure up to God. Because when I see how far I've got to go, I'm not real worried about how far you have to go. And, and I see that, that I'm imperfect and I'm loved by a perfect God. And I can begin to love you just as you are. And I can let God change you. Because that's his job. Years ago, I um, had a friend and, and we were always giving each other a hard time. And, and uh, one time she kind of said something to me, you know, kind of a, a zinger. And, and, and I said, wow. I didn't know you'd become the Holy Spirit. And she just had this shocked look on her face. And I said, you're trying to take God's role in my life. And that job's already taken. That was pretty rough, but we got through it. Um, But you see, we do that, don't we? We try to pretend that we are all knowing about someone else's life instead of dealing with our own lives. And man, we would get, to get along a lot better if we would look to Jesus and say, I've got so far to go. I'm not even going to try to worry about fixing you because I'm not fixed. 
we'd get along a whole lot better. Well, there's a second thing we do to get over these mountains. It's called the traction of loving actions. Now, did you know I actually read that most of the deaths, after the, the, the death zone, most of the deaths happen climbing Mount Everest in this shifting rock formation. It's really from base camp one to base camp two. There's this ice formation that shifts all the time, and that's the second highest number of deaths because it's so unstable there. And if you don't have the right kind of boots, you are going to die in this zone. And so to a, to a climber, traction is everything. Well, I think that what we've got to realize is that we've got to not just say it. We had this discussion this week. We've been reading the, the One Month to Live as a Family over lunch. And we had this thing. Do you say you love somebody more or do you show somebody you love more? Everyone in my family said, no, I guess we say it more than we do it. And, and loving actions. And really, it doesn't even have to be big things. We have to know, though, those people in our families. And we got to know the little things that make them feel loved. When you do that, it gives power. It gives traction to your words. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to do these things that build somebody up, we got to understand three C's that give love traction. The first is consideration. Philippians 2, 4 says, Care about them as much as you care about yourselves. If we did this one verse in the Bible, there would be no war in the world. There'd be no fighting in churches. There'd be no fighting. If we just cared for other people as much as we cared about ourselves, it would change the world. The problem, though, is most of us have conditional love. I'll love you if you love me first. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. But marriage works best when, best when both husband and wife say, I love you, period. There's nothing you could do that would make me love you more. There's nothing you could do that would make me love you less. I love you. Unconditional love. And it takes God's power to do that. Second key C is cooperation. John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. This is kind of a, a, a really cool passage because what's happening is Jesus is about to die. He knows this is the Passover meal. This is the last time he's going to be with all of his disciples. And so in that culture, you probably have heard this before. In that culture, they walked around in sandals and the, the roads were dirt roads. They didn't have paved roads. And so Jesus, they're, they're all reclining down um, around the table because they didn't have tables like we do out here with chairs. They had a table that was pretty much on the ground and they would lay down and they would kind of recline on pillows. And, 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 and even in scripture, it talks about John kind of had his head back on Jesus' chest. Wouldn't that be awesome to be the guy that, that got to lean up against Jesus, you know, at a meal? That would be kind of cool. It says that Jesus knew that his time was short. He was about to die for the sins of the world. And he does the most amazing thing. He gets up. And he puts a towel around his waist. And he does the job of a little slave. You see, because it was customary. If you were a good host, if you came to my home and we were living in those times, you came to my home, the first thing I would do is I would have a servant bring out a bowl of water to wash your feet. And, and if I wasn't really a wealthy guy and I didn't have a servant, at least I would put a bowl of water next to the front door so that you could dry, wash your feet, dry them off, and you would feel cleansed as you came into my house. Jesus, the son of God, about to die, a sinless man about to die for our sins, gets up and he washes the feet of dirty disciples. One of the most incredible acts of love. It says he showed them the full extent of his love and he got down on his hands and knees and washed their dirty, filthy feet. And then he says, 
This is how you need to treat one another. Now, I've been married 21 years, got three kids. And when, when I'm in the flesh, I'm not very fun to live with. And I can't stand bowls and plates and stuff. I mean, I've told you, you're laughing, I heard that snicker. There, there are two places in the house that are mine. My sink and my chair. And God forbid that anyone should mess with those two places in the house. You can do whatever you want to with the rest of the house, but don't mess with my sink and my chair. And Janie, I think she just does it to jack with me. She just throws things in my sink. She'll brush her teeth and spit. And, you know, I don't even like the stuff sitting around, you know, from your spit in my sink. Wash it down. I don't ever go use her sink. I don't ever sit in it. Anyway, I digress. But what God was, was showing me when I slowed down enough and shut up enough to listen. My time with my kids is short. It's not that big a deal if there's a bowl. Jesus would pick the bowl up and take it to the kitchen instead of yelling at the kids. Jesus would serve. I'm such a failure at that. We're supposed to uh, we're supposed to be on the same team, and I guess you all know what it's like to have people close to you die. But I guess death really just brings that close to home. My sister, who's a very strong woman, and she's such a servant. She struggled this whole week because she said, "I'm not the one supposed to receive help from others." She and her husband, are they have a catering business and they, they're just unbelievable at what they do. And, and as I watch people from First Baptist Church where I was a member when I was a teenager, I watch them come in, it just overwhelmed my sister. And, and she, she said, I'm, I, I don't know how to handle this. And I said, just accept it because this is, what, this is what the body of Christ is supposed to do, help us bear our burdens. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about the people in your life and I want you to quit trying to change them. I want you to try to cherish them. And if you're married, the Bible says that you are one in God's sight. In God's math, one man, one woman equals one. So if you're criticizing your spouse, you're criticizing yourself. If you're hurting your spouse, you're hurting yourself. That makes as much sense as leaving Tony Romo at quarterback. (laughs) Third C is commitment. I've lost count now of how many weddings I've done. Um, It was kind of funny. Uh, I'm actually going to spend the night tomorrow night with the couple that I, the very first marriage I ever did uh, 22 years ago. Um, the reason I remember it, number one, is the first marriage, but also number two, because the night before they were going to get married is when I proposed to Janie. And so everybody and their dog was giving me such a hard time because I asked my, my buddy, I said, hey, dude, here's the deal. This is Janie's birthday. I'm going to propose. And that was the night of the rehearsal. I said, can we do the rehearsal on Thursday night so that I can propose to Janie on Friday and then I'll do your, your wedding on Saturday? And, uh, and he was like, oh, sure. But he, we didn't tell anybody. 
Nobody. There were four people on the planet who knew I was going to propose. My brother-in-law, which totally ate my sister up, um, and, and this guy and his wife and, and me. And so everybody's like, what? that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Who does a, a, a rehearsal on Thursday night? You need to do it on Friday night. Just, anyway, all this stuff. And from that very first wedding until now, I've said these words to every couple that I've, I've done their wedding. I said, will you keep this promise as long as you and your spouse are alive? Never once has anyone said, nope. I'm going to keep it as long as it's convenient. And, and I read the scripture that says, when you say yes on earth, it means yes in heaven. When you say no on earth, it means no in heaven. I read the scripture that says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying there's not biblical reasons for divorce. There, there is. But 99% of the time, we get divorced for non-biblical reasons. And then we wonder why our next marriage doesn't work. It's because we're not doing things God's way. When I say commitment, I mean I'm not going to quit. I told Janie before we ever got married, I said, before, actually before I proposed to her, I said, I'm not going to divorce you for any reason. And I need to know if you're that type of woman that you won't divorce me for any reason. And so we don't even, when, when times get tough, we, we do not ever bring up divorce. It's not an option. We just work through it. And I was talking on the phone yesterday and I said, here's the deal. I can honestly say to you that my marriage, I, I love my wife more today, 21 years later than I did. I didn't have a clue what I was saying when I was making those promises. Now I know her and I love her better. And, and I want to read you a thing about commitment, one of the best things of, of commitment I've ever, I've ever read. There's never been a finer person in American... This is a, this is a letter written by John Wooden. He was a coach for, former coach for UCLA. This was written by uh, one of his friends. There's never been a finer person in American sports than John Wooden or a finer coach. He won 10 NCAA basketball championships at UCLA, the last in 1975. Nobody's ever come within six of, of them. He won 88 straight games. Nobody's come within 42 uh, since then. There has never been another coach like Wooden. Loyal to one woman, one school, one way, walking around campus in sensible shoes and Jimmy Stewart morals. Discipline yourself and others won't need to, coach would say. Never lie, never cheat, never steal. I had to blink. My eyes went crazy. And earn the right to be proud and confident. If you played for him, you played by his rules. Never score without acknowledging your teammates. One word of profanity and you're done for that day. Treat your opponent with respect. He believed in, in hopelessly out-of-date stuff, but never did anything but win championships. No long hair, no facial hair. It would take too long to dry, and you will catch cold leaving the gym, he would say. That drove one of his players bonkers. Um, one day, All-American center Bill Walton, I don't know how many of you know Bill Walton. He's a commentator now. Um, he won a championship uh, years ago. All-American center Bill Walton showed, showed up with a full beard. It's my right he insisted, wouldn't ask him if he believed that strongly. And, and Walton said, yes, he did. And he said, that's good, Bill. I admire people who have strong beliefs and stick by them. I really do. We're going to miss you. <laughs> Walton shaved it right then and there. And, and Coach Wooden died a couple years ago. Up until the day he died, Walton called Coach at least once a week to tell him how much he loved him. 
he's gone now, but, but back on when he was alive, on the 21st of each month, the best night, man I know, and, and this was in the present tense, so I'm reading it that way, the best night, man I know will do what he always does on the 21st of the month. He will sit down, he'll pen a love letter to his best girl. He'll say how much he misses her and, how, and he loves her and he can't wait to see her again. Then he'll fold it once, slide it into a little envelope and walk into his bedroom. He'll go to the stack of love letters sitting there on her pillow, untie the yellow ribbon, place the new one on top and tie the ribbon again. The stack will be 180 letters high because the 21st will be 15 years to the day since Nellie, his beloved wife of 53 years, died. In her memory, he sleeps only on his side of the bed, only on his pillow, only on top of the sheets, never between, with just the old bedspread they shared to keep them warm. That's supernatural commitment. I've seen men at nursing homes. A friend of mine, he, uh, until the day his wife died from Alzheimer's, she'd be screaming out in pain. Every day he would be there comforting her. He didn't date. He didn't, he didn't even look around. He comforted her until the day she died. That's commitment. Last thing, real quickly, is connected by forgiveness. Every climber knows the importance of being tethered to the rock, but it also helps to be connected to other people to make sure we don't fall. And we do that through forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. John Ortberg, one of my favorite pastors, says this, The problem for many couples is that they just have an incorrect concept of what marriage really is. You see, most people look at marriage like buying a new car. And, and I've, I've been in a couple of new cars. I've never bought a new car. But, you know, it has that new car smell. And after a while, what happens to the new car smell? It goes away. And um, then we have some some dings in the doors, and over time stuff happens, right? And then the motor starts running kind of rough. And, and so what a lot of people do is they'll say, hey, there's a problem with my ride. Maybe I should go get a new one. And they'll try to trade in their ride for a new one. They'll just keep trying to get this new car. Or what they'll do is they'll go to the car wash. Y'all ever gotten the new car smell squirted in there? Because after a while, your car begins to smell like chicken nuggets, old chicken nuggets. And then you get the new car smell on top of it. And you drive about a mile down the road, and you got this kind of new car and chicken nugget trash going on. And you're like, ah, oh, it's worse than chicken nuggets, right? And so a lot of people decide they're going to trade it in and, and get a new one. And um, that's not the biblical idea of marriage. A healthier concept is this. And I want you to think about this. It's like having a box with a bunch of broken pieces in it. Because every one of us are broken individuals. We're messed up. We got stuff in our lives. And a biblical concept of marriage is we began to put those broken pieces together and make it this beautiful mosaic. You see, when a car, when you drive a new car off the car lot, you lose about $2,000. If you were to turn around and drive it back in and try to resell it, you would lose $2,000 in the process because new cars depreciate. But a biblical marriage, far from depreciating, a biblical marriage becomes more valuable over time. As these two broken People come together, they form something beautiful that lasts forever. That's the right concept of marriage. Two broken people with God's help making our marriage beautiful and blessing our children and our grandchildren and future generations because of what we're trying to accomplish in our marriage. We couldn't do it on our own. We can only do it with God's help. There's a Peanuts cartoon where Linus is... um, He's inside and he's watching TV and Lucy comes in and Lucy says, change the channel. And he says, what makes you think you can tell me what channel I need to watch? 
And she holds up her hand and, and she curls it into a fist. And she says, that's why. And he goes, what channel do you want? And uh, she says, individually, these five fingers, they're nothing. But when I curl them together and form them into a single unit, they form a weapon terrible to behold. Linus, the next little frame, Linus looks at his fingers and he goes, why can't you guys get together like that? (laughs) Here's the deal. Individually, we're not worth much. It's like, you know, we're, we're worth a lot to God, but we can't do a lot in this big world. But it's like individual um, snowflakes. When snowflakes stick together, they can stop traffic. When Christ followers come together and try to do something for the kingdom of God, a little church in East Texas called New Life Community Church can do something big. Next week, we're going to go after the services. We're going to go to Greens Park. If you don't know where that is, we'll, we'll tell you. There's a sign-up sheet out back. We need you to sign up just so we'll know how much food we need to get. We're going to provide burgers and hot dogs and the fixings. We just ask you to bring drinks for your family. We're going to ask you to come to church next week dressed, ready to serve. So whatever you're going to go out, we're going to, we're going to cut down tree limbs. We're going to rake. We're going to mow. So we need all kinds of lawn equipment to come that day. The city of Palestine is going to have some folks out there. They're going to have some dump trucks. The dump trucks can't leave Greens Park, but if we collect um, branches and leaves and all that stuff from other places around that neighborhood, we can bring that there and, and throw it in the dump truck. We're going to partner with the city to actually put our words to action. Instead of just talking about reaching out, we're going to go do something. We're asking you to wear your uh, NLCC is weird shirt. Some of you weren't here for that. NLCC is weird because normal isn't working. We don't want to be normal. Normal's broke. Normal is, is, is divorce. Normal is all that. We don't want to be normal. We want to be weird for the cause of Christ. There's a, there's a very narrow road, Jesus said, and very few people who are, are on it. We want to be those weird people who are following Christ and doing something outside these walls. So it's so easy next Sunday. We did this two years ago. We had a blast doing it. It was fun to go out and, and to uh, serve. We're going to have some t-shirts ready next Sunday, and they're going to be $12 a piece. We have a few extras. Some of you ordered them. Some of you already paid for them. Um, that's cool. They'll be ready next Sunday. If you want to buy a shirt, uh, you can do that. We've got a few extras. Even if you don't have one, we want you to come and, and serve with us. And if somebody asks you why you do it, you're just saying because God loves us and has given us so much, we just want to help a little bit. And just watch what God will do with that. So we're going to go out and do that next week. But in the meantime, I want to ask you to look at the people in your lives this week and figure out how you can cherish them. And if you've got no clue how you can cherish the people that God's put in front of you, ask them to make a list. I mean, how hard is that? I asked Janie, it took her three minutes to come up with, this is how I feel cherished. And so I've done those things since we recorded that. We actually recorded it for last Sunday and then, you know, had the death in the family. So for... 10 days now, I've been looking for ways that I can make her feel cherished. And by the way, doesn't her hair look great? Dude, I tell her all the time, your hair is awesome. So y'all tell her her hair's awesome. <laughs> Usually when I tell her that, she gets it cut off. I don't know what it, what it is with you ladies, you know, husband, go, I love your hair like that. <laughs> I don't understand it. Next week, we're going to have a free garage sale. The, the youth, or is it uncouth? Youth, the youth is going to do a free garage sale. <laughs> so we are asking you to bring some stuff, but don't bring junk. I do not want New Life Community Church associated with trash. If you want to give something that, that we can bless somebody with in the neighborhood that we're going to be out there and set up, where are you going to do that? 
at the park, at Greens Park. We're going to go around, pass out some flyers and say a free garage sale. If you want to bring some stuff, we need to bring it. When do you need to bring it? Just there? Okay, so we want to have our parking lot full of trailers with with stuff, with mowers, with trimmers, all of that stuff. We want to have our parking lot full. We're going to leave from here and go out there. Here's what's going to happen. Your children will be taken care of until 3 p.m. that day. They'll be fed lunch here. If you're working in the children's area, we ask you to work from 11 to 1 or from 1 to 3. And there's a sign-up sheet back there where you can say if you want to work at the park or if you want to work in children's area. We're still going to work after 3 p.m. If there's still stuff to do that day, you can bring kids. But but fourth through sixth graders can work only with their parents. That means you're responsible for them if they come with you to work at the park. Make sense? So child care here will be up through third grade and it will it will stay until 3 p.m. And then you can bring them back out there if you want to. But we just want to do something to make a difference in in our neighborhood. All right. Take your registration cards, if you would. Fill those out. And on the back, we always ask you to write something down. I just want you to say on the back, which of those mountains is most challenging for you to overcome? Which one of those things is most difficult for you to forgive? Remember what the mountains were? Mountain of misunderstanding, me first, or mistakes? Which one do you struggle getting over most? And we're going to start our children's program. Our, our teenagers meet from 6 to 7.30 on Wednesday nights. We are starting, um, I think it's from three years old through fifth grade on Wednesday nights. We're starting our program this Wednesday from 6 to 7.30. We need four additional workers. Um, we're going to be doing some different things, teaching them some music, teaching them some drama, things like that. And if you would be willing to help, we're going to do 10 weeks and then take off for um, Christmas. So if you're interested in that, um, write that on your card and I'll get you in touch with Jennifer. She'll get you plugged in. Let's pray together and be dismissed. Father, I just want to thank you for sustaining my family during a very difficult time. And God, I want to thank you that, that, that pain and suffering is a reminder that this world is not all there is. You never designed for us to live forever on this planet. That's why our bodies break down and that's why um, there's pain and suffering and there's death. And so I pray that, that we learn that sooner rather than later. And that we spend a lot of time this week cherishing our families. And I know there's a lot of hurt in this room. God, seeing people up here on their knees, hearing, hearing the weeping. I know that, that life is difficult. And so I pray that, that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead would be applied to our lives. That you'd resurrect some marriages. That you'd resurrect some relationships between parents and children. And that you would get the glory for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.